0: It's time to step up our education, relearn the basics of portfolio allocation, renew our budgeting and investing strategies, get our finances right, avoid those money tragedies, understand the basics of credit, debt and lending, make sure we're saving more than we are spending. Keep putting money to work. Ride that wave of compounding. If you get started early, the results will be outstanding. Your financial literacy is key to your success. So let's keep getting smarter on the Investopedia Express. Well, hello, and welcome back to Financial Literacy Month on The Express. We have a very special treat in store as Michelle Singletary, the personal finance columnist for The Washington Post, joins the show to talk about our money questions. But first, there's a lot going on, so let's roll.
1: How
0: How did equity investors respond to the S&P 500 topping 4,000 over a week ago? By sending it to new highs, of course, screaming past 4,100 last week. The benchmark index has made 19 record highs so far in 2021. But there's been yet another sector rotation underway as the big tech, internet, and consumer discretionary mega cap stocks which led the gains in 2020 have rallied in the past two weeks. The NASDAQ 100, which includes Apple, Tesla, Amazon, Google, and Starbucks, just to name a few, is up 7% in the past two weeks. The S&P 500 is up 10% this year alone, and up nearly 70% since the lows of late March 2020. According to our friends at Bespoke, the S&P 500 is at its most overbought level in four years. Well, what happened four years ago? President Trump passed the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, slashing the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. Fast forward to today, and the Biden administration wants to raise the corporate tax rate up to 28% and increase a few more corporate taxes along the way. Still, investors keep pushing stocks to record highs, and money inflows into stocks over the past three months have hit an all-time record. But it's not just the S&P 500 topping new highs. Dow Transports have traded higher for 10 consecutive weeks. Will we get to 11 this week? If you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, most of 11. This. Thank you, Nigel. Investors are betting that all this spending and all the spending that's to come, combined with these cozy low interest rates, will mean higher highs for stocks. The voices of caution are out there, and there are many. They say a lot of this good economic news is already priced into the stock market. As we know, the stock market and the economy are not the same. But the stock market does anticipate economic strength. We've seen it for the past eight months. It also tends to anticipate when that strength is peaking. And as our friend Lizanne Saunders of Schwab likes to say, the discounting nature of the stock market cuts both ways. If you look at the appreciation in stocks compared to the appreciation of gross domestic product, you can't deny that we are indeed at extremes in terms of the disconnect. The ratio of the two is often referred to as the Buffett indicator because it's one of Warren Buffett's favorite valuation metrics. That ratio has never been as high as it is today, even higher than its peak in the internet bubble of 2000. Two things can bring it down. A sudden correction in the stock market or a surge in GDP. Which one do you think is more likely? Well, if you haven't made up your mind yet, don't forget that President Biden released a $1.52 trillion fiscal 2022 budget to Congress last week. The plan calls for $14 billion for domestic climate programs and investments in clean energy, such as buying electric vehicles for the U.S. Postal Service. $900 million would go to the IRS to ramp up audits and recoup an extra $175 billion of lost taxes from the estimated 21% of income some of the wealthiest households don't report. There's $3 billion set aside for immigration, $2.7 billion for Amtrak, a 23% increase in health spending, and a record 40% increase for education. The military and defense budgets were barely increased. This budget, by the way, comes on top of the $2.2 trillion spending bill the president introduced in March. Both will be mightily challenged in the Senate. A hey, Quick check on the red-hot U.S. housing market, but watch your fingers because this stove will burn you. According to real estate tracker Redfin, almost half of the homes listed on the market are selling within one week, and the national average home price has jumped 17% from a year ago. There's a record low number of homes for sale, according to the National Association of Realtors, just 1.03 million. Compare that to the peak of the last housing bubble in 2007, just before the great financial crisis, when there were 4 million homes on the market. In Austin, Texas, one of the more popular cities for millennials to move this year, the median listing price for a single-family home has risen 40% in one year to $520,000. What are the other popular cities people are moving to? Denver. Seattle, Phoenix, Colorado Springs, Frisco, Texas, and Cary, North Carolina. Well, if you love business news, you're going to love this week because it is jam-packed. So let's get set up. First quarter earnings season is underway and report cards will start coming in this week. The outlook couldn't be more different than when it was a year ago. In April of 2020, we had just entered into a pandemic and major economies were closing around the world. Companies weren't giving earnings guidance because they had no idea how bad things were about to get. A year later, and most companies that survived the past 12 months are sitting in much better places in terms of their balance sheets and their prospects. Overall, S&P 500 earnings are expected to have jumped 25% in the first quarter from a year ago. That would be the biggest quarterly increase since 2018, right after those big corporate tax cuts I was talking about. Big banks will be among the first to report results this week, including J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, among others. As interest rates have been rising, so have their net interest margins, which drive their bottom lines. Bank stocks have been among the best performers in 2021, as more spending and rising rates are a great recipe for growing profits. We'll also get results from key companies to watch, including Delta Airlines, PepsiCo, Bed Bath & Beyond, as well as Afria, the cannabis giant, just to name a few and it's a big week for cryptocurrency lovers and watchers. Coinbase, the largest cryptocurrency exchange, plans to go public on April 14th via a direct listing. Investors have been waiting for this one, as it is the first crypto exchange to sell shares to the public. The company is selling about 115 million shares directly to the public, according to its S1 filing. Analysts have valued the company anywhere from $70 to $100 billion. In its filing, the company said it has 56 million verified accounts and reported revenue of $1.8 billion in the last quarter with net income of approximately 730 to $800 million. In 2020, it brought in $1.3 billion in revenue with a profit of $322 million. That's real money, even in cryptocurrency land. We'll also get reports on retail sales for the U.S. and Europe this week. In the U.S., we'll be paying attention to whether sales picked up from January and February, especially after the most recent round of stimulus checks were issued. Are consumers spending, saving, or investing that extra cash? On Friday, we'll get a preliminary report on U.S. consumer confidence and expectations for April. Spending expectations are sky high given the success of the vaccine rollout and the reopening of the economy. Are consumers feeling that too? April is Financial Literacy Month, our favorite month of the year, and we've been taking your questions on our social media channels about savings, budgeting, and investing all month and bringing in the smartest people we can find to answer them. There's a problem, though. Your questions are so smart that we needed to go even deeper into the world of personal finance experts and literally get a living legend involved. And that's Michelle Singletary, the award-winning author and personal finance columnist for the Washington Post. She writes the Color of Money column for the Post. She has a terrific weekly newsletter. She's all over radio and TV, and she is our very special guest on the Investopedia Express. Welcome, Michelle.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. And I am the one who's honored. I love your site. And I use it as a resource for myself and my readers. I say, go there and get even more information.
0: Thank you. And you can't see folks, but I'm blushing and melting like crazy over here (laughs) because we are such big fans of Michelle's at Investopedia. And it's a real delight to have you here. You do what we do at Investopedia, which is you answer people's questions. The thing about personal finance, Michelle, and you know it better than most, is that it's personal, right? Everyone's situation is unique, but still there's a lot of questions that kind of are the same and Universal, even though the answers are slightly different for everyone, right? You see this every week in your own columns.
1: That's right, yeah. It, they're universal principles. People wanna know about debt. They wanna know about how to save. They And a lot of retirement questions, which I love that people are asking and doing a deep dive into making sure they save enough for retirement.
0: Absolutely. And the, I think the notion, and you've probably seen this over the last few years or even over the last couple of decades, the notion of retirement, like I'm gonna stop at 65, I don't think that really exists so much anymore companies don't really have, you know, those types of programs for people, but it's really the notion of buying time for yourself to do the things you want to do. That's kind of how we've been thinking about retirement. How about you?
1: Exactly right. I, I sort of look at it as your second season of your life. You know, the first season you're getting your job, you're getting established. And then the second season you get to do what you really want to do, which may not be ending work. It's just working in a different way. I mean, when I retire, I'm not going to stop working. I'll be you know, doing more work in the community. I do a lot of uh, community work. I started a ministry at my church, a financial ministry at my church. My husband and I uh, teach financial classes in prisons to help those people who are about to be released handle their money. We'd like to do more of that. And now with the virtual world, we're not limited to where we live. So we can go to institutions across the country. And so that's my second season of life.
0: That doesn't sound like retirement. That sounds like really doing the work you were put here to do and and doing it for the right reasons. That's awesome. Look, 2020 was obviously so devastating for so many people from a health standpoint on obviously, but also from a personal finance standpoint, we know the market did great. We know that, you know, the economy is bouncing back, but it's a K-shaped recovery, as we say all the time. A lot of people didn't do well. A lot of people fell into poverty or had some personal finance tragedies and crises of their own. What kinds of questions were you getting from your readers that just showed you how deep that was throughout the crisis and even up till now?
1: You know, I think the thing that I noticed, you know, we use the formal term K-shaped economy, but for the regular folks, it just means... Means that there were a lot of haves and have-nots. And this pandemic really showed us how much that divide is. And so I got questions from both sides, people who are you know, doing well and figuring out how to do better. And so what I found, at least in my ministry, was there was a ton of people who had been spending their money recklessly, but had it. And now they're saving like crazy. They're paying off debt. And they're actually in a better financial position because of the pandemic. And then there were people who are just, they are different Classic of boys of that other side. There are people who were living paycheck to paycheck because their job didn't pay them enough to even save. So there's no point in wagging our finger at them. They just couldn't earn enough. And then there were people who were doing okay, living paycheck to paycheck. They were able to do what they need to do. But when that paycheck stopped, they realized that they didn't have a cushion. And so they trouble paying their mortgage, paying their credit card debt, keeping their kids in college. And those folks just, I think, got a rude wake up call that the party was over, that they should have paid more attention to their finances. Now, my role is never to chastise people because you know when you don't do well, right? You know, I always try to lose weight in people. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> I know what I'm supposed to do. But I think now what, what I think I like to do and what you guys do is to say, okay, where are you now? Let's try to help you move forward. You can't cry about what you didn't know, or maybe you did know, and now you know better. And so that's kind of what I've been doing. And I tell you, I've been on an emotional roller coaster this whole time. I mean, I really, my heart just goes out to so many people whose lives were financially, I wouldn't say ruined, but just devastated by the loss of their jobs or income or the economy. Even if they went back to work, it's still not the same for them.
0: Right, right. And for a lot of these folks, especially if they're a little bit older, they were just coming out of the great financial crisis, especially when you look across race, when you look across unemployment and income levels and investment levels across race, which I know you do in your column and also in your newsletters, it's just not equal. And a lot of these folks who weren't on the upper part of the K-shaped recovery, the have-nots, things just got worse for them. The upswing in the economy means nothing to them. The upswing in the stock market means nothing. They're not invested, no equity, no savings. And they just had their jobs probably taken from them because they were part of the services economy. So very tough time for folks. Well, you're coming out with a new book, which I already pre-ordered, which is what to do with your money when a crisis hits. It's a survival guide. I got a pretty good idea why you wrote the book. You wrote it because of things that happened in in the past 12 months, but also these types of crises happen all the time. What's behind the book and what kind of lessons are in there?
1: So that's exactly right. My publisher and I wanted to put together a book that was a quick read. So it's not a soup to nuts, everything you need to know about money, but it's the frequently asked questions that you and I get all the time and little nuggets with My personality behind it. And so, you know, when you're in a crisis, you have like basic questions that you need answered. How do I pay my rent? Where do I get money to pay my rent? Well, how do I talk to my mortgage company? You know, do I ask them for a pause in my payment? You know, how about healthcare? I've lost my job. Now what? And so the book sort of addresses people who are right in the middle of the crisis, just basic questions. Here's where you can get, you know, baseline health care. And it, I have a ton of resources. So I look at this book as sort of heavy hors d'oeuvres, right? When you go to a party, you can, you can, be satisfied with the heavy hors d'oeuvres, but you really still need a meal. But this, so this book is a heavy hors d'oeuvre meal, and I wanted to manage people's expectations. I'm going to answer those basic questions, but here's where you need to go to do a deeper dive to get you out. And here's the thing we'll get through this crisis, the pandemic. And then right behind it will be another one because there always has been. And I wanted people to realize that even if they come out of this unscathed or maybe they come out and they are able to rebuild, don't forget what it was like. And that's what this book is like continually recommending. I live, and this is true, almost like I'm always in a recession. My husband and I live way below our means. I'm always stashing money different places as if the recession is gonna happen tomorrow. And I'm not living out of fear, but I'm just recognizing through history, there's always an economic downturn. Now, it could be every five years, every 10 years, like many ones, but there is going to be one. And I hope that people use this book as a constant reminder that you've got to do your best financially. And if you haven't, let me help you figure out where to go. Something as simple as, I don't have a whole bunch of money, what do I pay? And the first part of the book I talk about how you triage your budget. So if you've ever been to an emergency room, you know, if you're sitting there with a broken ankle and someone comes in and they take them right back. You're like, "Wait a minute, I've been sitting here for a really long time." But you know that person had, was having a heart attack. So they had to take them back. You got to do the same thing with your money. If you've lost your job, you just keep a roof over your head and food on the table. The credit card companies got to wait. The medical debts got to wait. Student loans got to wait. You got to do what you got to do. And I kind of give permission for people to do that. It loves me to say that, right? Like cuz all of us who are in this financial space want people to pay their bills on time. But when you're in those kind of situations, sometimes you just need to someone to say, "Hey, It's okay. And don't beat yourself
0: up. Right. And it's a guide, right? It's not the entire tome of how to do it, but it's a guide to help to point you to resources. Folks, you could pre-order it on michellesingletary.com on any of your great booksellers there, plus a ton of good resources on your website too, plus your column, which I don't miss. I love it every Sunday with a cup of coffee, one of my go-tos every weekend. So given those questions, and we get a lot of the same ones, people do ask this question all the time. One of the key ones we got, as we've been fielding questions from our listeners and, and followers is, I have a lot of debt, which ones do I pay first? And we typically say, hit that high interest one first, because that's the one eating into you. What's your advice on that to folks that are facing three or four different debts, but which one should they attack?
1: Yeah, so I have a different opinion about that. And I know I'm out here. So most wise financial folks like yourself say, hit the high interest rate first. And that makes sense on paper. But the one thing I think I have going for me is that because of the work I do in my community, and Every single month, I have a financial workshop with almost about 200 people. And so I get to see how real people handle their money on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, there's always principle, theory, and practice. And in practice, what people need is a quick victory when they're paying off debt. So I actually recommend you list your debts from the smallest to the largest. And what we found in the ministry, and this is over years, is that when people can quickly knock off debt, they get energized and next thing you know that debt is gone and so they don't actually end up paying more interest rate because they're quickly getting rid of the debt so when you have small successes it's like the hundred yard dash you're there right and you've got this adrenaline going and that's what happens when you're paying off debt because it's not a math problem it's a mental problem and oftentimes we want to solve financial issues using the math the theory But that's not what people do in practice, right? And so when I have them list a small debt, they get rid of like two hundred here, one hundred there, you know, that kind of thing. Next thing you know, they're like, "I can do this," and they find money and they buckle down, and they get rid of that. And and this is not me, just anecdotal. There have been studies that show that that method, small to the large, actually works really well for the majority of people.
0: It's so fascinating. And it, it does speak to our sort of our behavior as savers, as investors, as people who, you know, facing those debts. I like the idea of those small victories because they do mean a lot when you're looking at that huge mountain of debt and you're like, oh no, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 here, but I can knock this out. This is a couple thousand. Maybe it does make a lot of sense. We get this question a lot. I'm sure you do too. Folks in their forties and fifties saying, I really haven't really started saving or investing for the future. I'm kind of waking up to the fact that I need to do it or I never could before. How do I start? Where do I start? What do you advise folks like this who are really never done it before.
1: So the first thing I say is forgive yourself because they spent a lot of time not doing anything because they just beating themselves up. And so just forgive yourself. You did what you did. Maybe you had the money. Maybe you didn't. You had kids, your parents, whatever. So now that you've woke up to the fact that I've got to get this going, now just take that step. Oftentimes, the first step is if you work for an employer that has a retirement plan, start there, making sure that you might be putting money in. But if you came in at the default rate, it's probably like 3 or 5%. Now, you got to boost that up. Folks, you just have to. Ideally, starting in your twenties, you want to do it at like fifteen percent. And so, like we, my husband and I, we have three kids. Our oldest is twenty six now. In a week or two, and so I'm talking to her about how much to save for retirement, and I t- I said fifteen percent, and she's just like, <laughs>
0: and
1: I said, but honey, if you do this now. And I know you're not making a lot of money now, but when you start to make more money, it won't be as much as you think. And now you've got time on your hand. So now let's say you don't do that and you're in your 40s and 50s. Now you've got to put a substantial amount away. So push yourself. And that might mean cutting some expenses, not taking, I mean, a lot of us got shut down from the pandemic, for vacations and things like that. So you're going to have to make some sacrifices, right? You can't keep doing everything. And if if retirement is a priority, that means you're going to have to cut some things. It might mean your kid can't go to a private school. It might mean that your kid can't go to a four-year university and live on campus. They live at home. They commute. They go to community college. So you can take some of that money and put it towards your retirement. It's not over, folks. If you wake up at 40 and 50, you haven't saved. It's not over. Because you could live another 30 or 40 years. That's 30 or 40 years of saving towards, you know, a time when you can't work. And so do as much as you can. And it might also mean, changing how you think you might retire, like all of us is like, well, I want to quit when I'm 55 or even 65. Well, I feel like 65 is a new 45. <laughs> I get closer to that number. And that, and you know, they're vibrant people still working in their seventies and eighties. And so it might mean that you can't like stop that full-on nine to five job or you know eight to you know four job for five or ten more years, and if you try to pay attention to your health, then you can make that happen for you. So two things: you got to save money, and you also have to be healthy so that you can still work.
0: Right? Yeah, and that's so key the the physical part. You know the emotional part of money, the physical part of taking care of yourself so it doesn't cost you down the road. And we always say when people say, "When what should I do? I haven't started. Well, the best day to start investing was yesterday. The second best day is today. Get started. Get a plan. Talk to an advisor. They're super helpful. Document it. Where do you spend? How much can you save? What are your goals? And folks are, a lot of folks are afraid to in, engage with that, just like we don't like talking about our health. We don't like talking about our money. The two most important things probably that affect us. So we try to get those conversations out, which is why Financial Literacy Month is so important, but it should be every month of the year. And I know you feel the same way.
1: Absolutely, every month. And I get it. You might be skilled at what you do. You could, you, in your space, your career, you're good at what you do. But this, you know, and the thing is, this money stuff is rocket science. I mean, I try not to make people feel bad about the fact that they don't know. It's so, I mean, you and I know this. We read constantly and we still don't know all that we need to do. And it's our full time job. And so I get that this stuff can be overwhelming. Just trying to explain retirement rules like, you know, 401k and Roths and when you can take the money out and the penalty if you're younger than 59 and a half. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. So just take it one step at a time. Like, that's why I think People should bookmark Investopedia at every day. I'm not kidding you. Every day, just, just peruse the website. Sometimes I don't, I'm not even going there for a question. I'm just looking at like, hey, what do I don't know about this? And read it like you would a magazine. Read it like you'd watch some reality television show. You know how we just sort of sit and veg well, you need to veg when it comes to financial literacy. Right? And I know it may sound super boring, but once you start getting into it, you will find that once you start reading about one thing, then you'll click a link and you'll start reading something else. And next thing you know, you'll become more informed. And this is not just for you. The more informed you are, then you're sp- spouse, then your children, then your sister, your auntie. You will help your family become more financially literate. And that will take the pressure off for everybody, right? If everybody's trying to handle their money well, they're not going to be coming to you because you're the one who has the money.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and those conversations are so important. And you have kids, I have kids, like just talking to them about how do I make money? How do I pay the bills? What do things cost? What can we afford? We're making an investment. What does that mean? Or starting brokerage accounts, custodian accounts for my kids and then having them work with me on picking the stocks and picking the indexes and picking the ETFs just to show them how it works. So important and those are lifelong lessons that I think everybody needs to learn. You start that saving at in your teens or in your twenties and your thirties, that investing and use that magic of compound interest, your 40-year-old right. self will love you for that.
1: Love you.
0: Well, I'm gonna hit you with with one last question. We get a lot of questions from folks in their 20s. They're starting their professional career. They're either coming out of college or they're they're in that stage where they're starting to earn a little bit of money, but how do I start investing? And I, you know, we try to keep it basic for all of them and everybody's needs are different, but that basic Let me start putting money to work. What do you tell folks who are right right in that very beginning part of their careers?
1: So I'm going to probably surprise you. The first question when a young person asks me, how do I start investing? My question to them, the very first question, do you have any debt? Do you have any student loan debt? And if the answer is yes, I said, then that is the investment you need to do. You need to get rid of that debt as soon as you can. That may mean staying at home or living with a relative or still having four or five roommates and concentrate on getting that. Now, I know that's not the advice that most people give, but if you think about it, if say you can go home and stay and live for even you know three or four years, you can knock out that debt and now you've got a clean slate. Now you start investing. Now, if you're working for a company that is offering a match, I want you to put enough in to get that match because that's free money. Stop and take that rest of that money and get rid of debt. I don't want you to start your life off with debt because here's what happens. If they don't invest in getting rid of that debt, they hold it onto their books. They might defer it or have forbearances. And next thing you know, that interest, you know this, interest on interest on interest, they wake up and that $30,000 average debt is now sixty dollars or $70,000 because they put it off while they're doing these other things. And then If you you can't take the money out or you shouldn't from your retirement account. And if you do, you pay a penalty plus taxes. So I'd rather you take that money and get out of debt and then save aggressively for retirement and start with a workplace plan. If you don't have a workplace plan, you still can invest. You can get a traditional IRA at any bank or credit union and set it up. You can put in What is it? Six thousand dollars now that's a lot for a young adult. They're probably not even going to make that limit. And so you don't have to worry if your company doesn't have a retirement plan. You can still save for retirement and just get a low-cost index fund. I mean, you know, I'm not skilled enough or smart enough to pick stocks, and I don't even want to worry about that. I just have in my portfolio low-cost index funds, both in retirement. I have a non-retirement investment account. And we do gangbusters in it, just low cost growth, S&P, mid cap, small cap. And, you know, we've done quite well for ourselves in very boring index funds.
0: Yes. And don't look at it, you know, but maybe once or twice a year, make sure you're still in balance and leave it alone, as John Bogle said founder of Vanguard, but you are so good with the advice and, and so personal with folks, which is what makes you such a great columnist and, and a delight to the industry. You really are terrific. And folks, you can follow Michelle on her column on the Washington Post, but pre-order the book, what to do with your money when crisis sits, go to michellesingletary.com, plenty of places to pre-order, follow her, follow the newsletters. It really is a delight to have you on the Investor Investopedia Express. Thanks so much, Michelle. Oh,
1: thank you. I, it is my honor, truly.
0: It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Dan in Raleigh, North Carolina. Nice town, the city of Oaks. Dan suggests gift tax this week, and given that it is financial literacy month and everyone's thinking about taxes lately, we like that suggestion. Dan will be sporting a handsome pair of Investopedia socks for his suggestion, and you can too by messaging us on our social media channels with your suggestion for next week's term. Well, what is a gift tax? According to my favorite website, a gift tax is a federal tax applied to an individual giving anything of value to another person. For something to be considered a gift, the receiving party cannot pay the giver full value for the gift, though they may pay an amount less than its full value. The giver of the gift is required to pay the gift tax, but under special circumstances, the receiver of the gift may pay the federal gift tax themselves. For 2019 and 2020, the annual gift exclusion was $15,000 per recipient. The lifetime exemption is $11.4 million in 2019, and it's $11.58 million in 2020 for a single donor. Gifts made to spouses who are U.S. citizens or to political organizations for use by that organization and for medical and tuition-related expenses on behalf of the recipient are excluded from the gift tax, along with gifts that are valued at less than the annual exclusion amount. We may see the limits on the gift tax lowered by the Biden administration, but so far, they have not included the gift tax in their legislative proposals. Good suggestion, Dan. I'd like to see you sporting those socks at a good ACC basketball game next fall. We're going to let Sean Carter, better known as Jay-Z, take us out this week. If you hadn't noticed, I kind of like hip-hop, and Jay-Z's in my personal Hall of Fame, not just for his music, which I love, but because I admire him as an entrepreneur and as a philanthropist. Here's Jay-Z in a 2010 interview with Warren Buffett, hosted by Steve Forbes, talking about his scholarship foundation and why he set it up, all thanks to his sixth-grade teacher, who believed in him.
1: The reason I focused on that because such a small thing changed my life, right? A, a sixth grade teacher said, you know what, you're kind of smart. And I, and, I, and I believed her. I said, I'm smart, right? So she gave me that sort of opportunity. She sparked the idea in my mind. So that's why my first thing is uh, the scholarship fund because there are a ton of uh, very intelligent kids that's coming out of these urban areas who, who can make it all the way if given the opportunity.
0: Let's give it up for all sixth grade teachers and all the teachers out there for that matter. You never know how the things you say to your students can end up changing their lives. It happened to me. It happened to Jay-Z. It can happen to anybody. Hey, give someone in your life the gift of believing in them this week if you can. It goes a long way. That's the last stop on this week's Express, but we'll be steaming through next week, and we are answering your questions on investing, saving, and budgeting all month on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. So find us there and send in your questions